DBHDD is reminding Georgians to ask their doctor about alternatives to opioid pain medication. Alternatives such as over-the-counter medications and physical therapy can be used to manage pain. More information at opioidresponse.info. This is Georgia Today, a production of Georgia Public Broadcasting. I'm Steve Fennessy. It's Friday, October 2nd, 2020. Coast Guard City Report of a cargo ship, Golden Ray, capsized with 23 persons on board in the vicinity of St. Simon Sound. For over a year, a massive cargo ship, longer than two football fields, has lain on its side just off the coast of St. Simon's Island in southeast Georgia. This week, Larry Hobbs, a reporter at the Brunswick News, on how the Golden Ray came to capsize in the first place, the tense hours as rescuers tried to free trap crew members, and what emerged from hearings last month into the possible causes of the disaster. Larry, for those of us who have not been to the Georgia coast in a while, what's different about the view of St. Simon Sound these days? What's different is there is a 656-foot-long, roughly 75,000-ton row-row ship What's a roll-on uh, ship? A car carrier. Roll, sh- cars roll on one place, and they roll off at the next port. Uh, this one's called the Golden Ray, and um, it's dumped over, roughly half-submerged at high tide. The locals probably don't remember what the, the view looked like without it because it is imposing. It's like some kind of, what is it, megalith or something that just juts out of the water. And it's, uh, it's now part of the landscape, well, the seascape. Yes, exactly. Let's talk a little bit about how it came to be there. Take us back to September 7th. I know that the, uh, the ship capsized there in the sound uh, in the early morning hours of September 8th. But the ship first arrived, everything was sort of business as usual, right, on September 7th? Uh, yes, it was. Uh, it's, it, it's probably important to go back to the whole, whole thing. And um, it began and made two stops in Mexico, one in Freeport, Texas. That's where its new captain, uh, G. Hawk Lee, got on. Then it came to the port in Jacksonville, intentionally following behind Hurricane Dorian. Then it came to Brunswick. So it was, a, it was a few days behind schedule because of the hurricane it was trying to tail? Right. And uh, it unloaded something in the neighborhood of 280 cars and took on something in the neighborhood of 360 cars. This is in Brunswick? In Brunswick, yes. Okay. Brunswick is one of the leaders in the row-row industry, one of the leading ports in America. Okay. And, that, and there was nothing unusual about that process that seemed to work go according to expectations? Everyone from the stevedore foreman to the, uh, the ship's owner to the captain of the ship to Captain Tennant, the harbor pilot, said everything was in fine working order and uh, was ready to, de- to depart shortly after midnight on September 8th. Larry, you mentioned Captain Jonathan Tennant, who wasn't a captain of the Golden Ray, but actually a Brunswick Harbor pilot. So for those of us who don't know how it works when you're piloting these enormous ships in and out of a port, what is the job of a harbor pilot? 
The harbor pilot uh, knows his or her port like no one else. Um, their job is to know every nuance of the port of Brunswick. And this tradition goes back literally, it's as old as going to sea. Hmm. A person comes out, meets the ship at sea before it comes in, right where the channel begins. And they board the ship. Uh, they talk to the captain. The captain hands over, the, and the harbor pilot does just that. He pilots the ship into the harbor. So piloting one of these these ships out of the harbor and in, towards the sea requires a kind of a right turn, a starboard turn, that's relatively sharp but is completely normal, and that's what Captain Tennant has done thousands of times. Yes. So what happens when he does it this time? He goes into from a 10-degree turn into the t- standard 20-degree turn, and that's when he feels it listing to starboard uh, significantly. So it's tipping. Right. He's piloted this journey thousands of times, but he testified nothing in his years ex- of experience prepared him for what happened on that dark morning night on September 8th. The vessel immediately took off to starboard, more so than I've ever experienced before in my career. Uh, so this is this explanation is very long, but realized that this took place in a few seconds. So Captain Tennant is basically turning the wheel to starboard to the right side, and, and the and the ship starts to list to that side. So does he does he steer the opposite way to sort of correct for that that list? So at one point he talks about going all the way to port, but at that point it was he, he says all was lost. Uh, I am still level. I'm still. Uh, I have no idea that I'm about to capsize at this point. Suddenly, uh, the the port side wall of the bridge becomes uh, the floor, and it's just chaos in there. was trying to get it out of the channel and up onto the um, sand on the on the other side of it so that the ship wouldn't go completely underwater. And he was talking about, say, he's like, this was no longer a, a piloting operation. This was a, a life-saving operation. So I'm just trying to imagine what it feels like to be on a ship that's that huge carrying that much cargo and it starts to list and starts to capsize. And I'm trying to imagine how terrifying that must be for the people on board. Yeah, the people were terrified, uh, especially the four who were down by the engine room. They get stuck there. Back to the bridge, they are literally laying sideways and holding on to anything they can to keep from falling out of this thing, which is now trumped over on the sandbar there. And then, of course, there's the 4,200 cars on there. And uh, I can imagine what a mess that looks like on board. Right. It, it's, um, they have straps that keep them in place. Just, you know, those straps are not made to hold anything in place sideways. And most of those give, and they hear, they hear cars crashing. Wow. Falling inside there. A 
apparently Captain Tennant gets out some information on the on the, the ship's radio before all power is lost, and um, he calls Coast Guard. It goes to Coast Guard Station Charleston. Coast Guard City report of a cargo ship Golden Ray capsized with 23 persons on board in the vicinity of St. Simon Sound. A Coast Guard helicopter arrives and, you know, one of these guys who's, who's trained to do this all their life does it. He rappels down there into the, uh, the ship's bridge, uh, assesses the situation, and uh, he makes an assessment of it, uh, switches to a plan B, which is to take a fire hose and roll it down all the way through the starboard side, out the port side door. Okay, former survivor just outside the cabin door. Roger that. Okay, I'm gonna bring it back up. Roger. Captain Tennant uh, climbs down that and into the water where he's picked up. The, the ship's captain, G. Hack Lee, does not want to leave. He says, I've got four people down in the engine room and I do not want to leave without them. Finally, Coast Guard convinces him to leave by telling him, you're the only one that can help us when we start going after them. We're gonna need you to tell us where to go. So is this, is it still um, pre-dawn hours at this point or has the sun come up? Most of this takes place in the dark. Okay. And, and meanwhile, there's four, you said there's four crew members who are down in the engine room, which I'm presuming is towards the bottom of the ship, right? The very bowels of the ship. Okay. And is there, because of the ship capsizing, is their exit from the engine room blocked in some way by water, by something? How, how are they? They're trapped, right? How are they trapped? They are trapped and there is an escape hatch and water is coming through the escape hatch. So is the compartment filling with water? Yes. Does that stop at some point? Because presumably if it kept it going, they, they would have drowned. The reason it doesn't is because it's not in the, the deeper channel. Okay. And so, so because it was grounded as opposed to being in the middle of the channel, it came to rest before it could submerge to a point where it would have drowned those four crew members. Yes, sir. Wow. So what is the, what's sort of the, um, the protocol or what's the procedure for trying to first identify where they are and then rescue them? Um, it, it's old-fashioned. It's like the, uh, that movie, The Poseidon Adventure. Uh, <laughs> they bang on, uh, this is the next afternoon, September 8th, Coast Guard members, other members of the rescue team, someone is banging with a hammer and they get a, you know, a return bang. That's bang, bang, bang. One person is alive, they're saying. We can, we can say, we know one person is alive because we're getting that banging. We know we can save one person. Okay. It's this is what September September eighth, last year. That's still that's still the peak of summer in in southeast Georgia. So oh yes. So is there any estimates about how hot it was getting inside that engine room? It was brawling hot. I mean, the sun comes out. They're in there the whole day. They literally take I guess they take a welding torch and weld out a little hole in the hull. Hole's about two inches thick. I think they said. Um, when that drops out, they can feed water in there. They find out all four are alive. Okay. One behind a 
a glass partition uh, in the engineering room, but all four are alive. Um, they used that to pump in fresh air, which was much needed at that point. Uh, once they once they have established this and they've gotten some water to them, they've gotten fresh air. They also find out that one way they're keeping cool, there's oil everywhere inside now. They're staying cool by literally going in to little pools of oil that are inside the engine room now. Wow. That is concerning to rescuers because, you know, a single spark could take this uh, a different way. So carefully, they decide to make a series of small holes like the one that they first made and make these in a circle until each hole meets and that piece drops out that's large enough to pluck four men out of there. Okay, so they're... I want to make sure I understand this. So they're using an arc welder, something that's throwing sparks, and and so could potentially ignite some of the oil that spilled inside that engine room. That must have been pretty nerve-wracking. I, I can't imagine it was anything but. And that's yeah. essentially how they ended up getting these, these four gentlemen out more than 36 hours later. Wow. Uh, the last come out was the man behind the partition. He came out about an hour after uh, his three crewmates. That we're down there. The four crew members trapped inside a capsized cargo ship are safe thanks to heroic rescue efforts by the U.S. Coast Guard. This means all 24 people who were aboard the huge vessel when it capsized are now off that ship and alive. I think I read in one of your stories that like the most serious of the injuries was a few broken fingers maybe. A few broken fingers. I think one person was reported with it was a broken ankle. I think it was later uh, like a fracture. Okay. That's, that that is remarkable. Everybody's, yes, it is. The environmental impact of the shipwreck and when work will finally begin to remove the Golden Ray from the waters of St. Simon Sound. That's ahead. This is Georgia Today. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. This is Georgia Today. We're talking to Larry Hobbs, a reporter for the Brunswick News, about the Golden Ray shipwreck one year later. Finding out what caused a cargo ship to overturn in St. Simon's Sound. Today, the Coast Guard and National Transportation Safety Board began a week-long public hearing to find out. Last so last month, in the middle of September or so, there was over a week of hearings to sort of figure out how did this all happen, right? Their purpose was to find out why this happened and to take steps so that it does not happen again. They have stated throughout that they are not looking to place blame or impose penalties or anything like that. They want to find out why this happened and how it can be prevented in the future. And over the course of these hearings, did an answer emerge as to why this happened? An engineering expert from the Coast Guard, Ian Oviat, basically assumed that uh, it was top heavy and riding too high. It took on 1,500 tons of ballast in the Gulf of Mexico in the form of salt water. Had the vessel kept the additional ballast on board that was discharged during the Freeport to Jacksonville voyage, this would likely have prevented the capsize. 
ballast is basically, if I'm understanding this correct, added weight that gives a ship sort of its center, that keeps it stable in the water. And the ballast can be, can be, they can be taking on water, in other words, to provide ballast, is that right? Right, the ship was coming in, as we talked about Hurricane Dorian, or any uh, extreme weather they might encounter, they took on ballast. Somewhere after the time that the threat of Dorian was over, they released all of that ballast. And just to be clear, that, that's the testimony from one expert, but isn't the final sort of determination by the Coast Guard or the NTSB about the cause. Is that right? They have not made an, uh, a final ruling on what they thought caused it. So when are we expecting a determination or a ruling from the NTSB and Coast Guard about what caused this? Within the next few months. Okay. These take time. Right. So what happens to the Golden Ray now? What what have officials determined that they're going to do with it? Well, uh, Unified Command, which is the Coast Guard, the State Department of Natural Resources, and uh, Gallagher Marine Systems, um, make sure that the salvage follows all environmental protocols set forth by the Oil Pollution Act of 1990. In other words, they're, they're there to make sure the owner of the ship complies with everything, does not leave a mess, um, does not destroy the environment, and pays for all damage. And Gallagher Marine Systems is a regulatory compliance support agency that is hired as part of the salvaging group. So, okay, the owner of the ship, which is Hyundai Glovis, they're financially responsible for the cleanup, right? Right. So what are some of the steps that are being taken? Do they somehow remove the cars from the ship, or are they still on there? Oh, they're still there. They're, they're not going anywhere. There were some things that they considered that they could do uh, that just, it was later determined, um, we're not going to work for this. Um, okay. One of them was like trying to, you know, hook up some chains to a tug and, and pull it off of there. But it just, it was so inundated. Uh, all of its cargo was down, you know, on, most of it was on the port side waiting it down there. It was, it was not coming out. I see. It was stuck, and there was no uns- there's no unstucking it. No. Okay, so the ship's owner has come up with a plan to cut the ship up into pieces. Eight pieces. Eight pieces. And uh, the Unified Command has approved that plan? They have. And when will that begin? Um, it should begin this week. Uh, They said early October. Larry, I understand that to cut up the Golden Ray, they're going to use this enormous piece of lifting machinery that's got this great name, the VB-10,000. What is the VB-10,000 and how does it work? The VB-10,000 looks like something out of War of the Worlds. Uh, It is... um, 155 feet high. That's higher than the roadway on the Sydney Lanier Bridge. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's for lifting and it's going to be for cutting. Now, it's it's made to dismantle old oil wells in the Gulf. Ah, okay. So it's is it sort of like a partly like a waterborne crane? It is, but it's exactly what it is. Okay. 
Uh, they're going to cut this with anchor chains attached to powerful winches. As uh, Coast Guard Commander Norm Witt has told me, it's, it's more like tearing. They're going to tear these pieces through the ship. Just the sheer force. So the cutting of it is not done by, like, a, a massive welder. It's done by the chains themselves? Yes, they're going to be attached to this BB-10,000. Here we are over a year since the incident. Why has it taken so long to begin to cut the thing up and get rid of it? Why, why is it still there? Nobody's ever done this to this degree. They did a similar thing uh, with the Roro ship off of the English Channel, um, but it was pretty much out in open waters. This is, I mean, this thing is plopped down between two resort islands in a very fragile and important ecosystem. Yeah, let's talk about that ecosystem because uh, I recall that in the days and weeks after the Golden Ray capsize, that there were a lot of environmentalists really concerned about fuel, uh, oil spill basically coming from the ship. So how much environmental damage was done as a result of this? Right now, to be honest with you, uh, I don't see much. It looked pretty bad. Um, starting, I think, September 10 and September 11, there were two oil spills. Like you could see the, the a black line looked almost like a magic marker had drawn it at the high tide mark when the tides receded. That was that was all. Fishing guides were complaining and showing that it was on the hulls of their boats when they went out. It was just a mess. But Coast Guard DNR they had they put booms out which absorbed the oil uh, that is meant to catch uh, oil that comes to the surface. Have they drained the ship of the fuel that remained in there that wasn't spilled out? They have pumped out uh, all but about 60,000 gallons. It was pumped out onto barges. Some of the tanks they simply could not reach. Okay. But they, several months it took, and began almost immediately after the, the Golden Ray capsized, they began pumping uh, the oil out of there. So it's not like that ship has just been sitting there for a year and no one's done anything. They've been, they've been working on it. They've been trying to uh, relieve it of the fuel. So when they do cut it up, it's not going to be spilling all over St. Simon's Sound. Yes. Uh, we haven't even talked about the environmental protection barrier, which took them four months to build. What's that? Uh, this is a massive piece of engineering. It is 80 poles set in pairs all the way around the shipwreck to... Uh, support a netting made of very sturdy material that's essentially meant to catch, uh, I don't know, a Kia Telluride uh, that might be rolling in the tide. Uh, anything that, that shakes us when they start this cutting process. Wow. It's going to be loud. What's been sort of the response of locals to this accident? It's actually, you know what, it's become a it's just become a part of the part of the area. People are really excited, waiting for when they're going to get down to this work. You know, we know each other here. It's a small town, small community. I work for a small paper. I know a lot of these people. Everybody has questions uh, that they want answered, but mostly I think people want to see the Golden Ray out of here. That's not a fixture we want to see laying around here anymore. Our thanks to Larry Hobbs, a reporter for the Brunswick News. I'm Steve Fennessy. 
This is Georgia Today, a production of Georgia Public Broadcasting. You can subscribe to our show at gpb.org slash Georgia Today or anywhere you get podcasts. Please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Have a story idea? Connect with us at georgiatoday at gpb.org. Our producers are Sean Powers and Priya Mahadevan. Our intern is Eva Rothenberg. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.